My pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, which is here for you. I want to give you advice and information so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. When you have a question for me, go to clark.com slash ask. Coming up later, I am so excited about initiatives going on around the country to reintegrate people who have done the crime and done the time back into society. We all benefit. And I want to tell you something that's been a bug for me for a long time that's finally starting to be fixed in so many places. I want to talk right now about something that has defied solutions for a good while, and that is there are a number of locations, especially on the coast, where housing has gotten so expensive that people are going to desperate means to have a place to live. I don't know, for most of us, if this is an experience we can even relate to, but in some of the highest cost cities in the country, people are subdividing small apartments into living quarters for as many as four or five different individuals or family units living in one-bedroom apartments. They use things like cardboard boxes as dividers or uh, curtains as dividers, and people are crowding in crazy numbers. And in places by the water, people are following an Asian model, and more and more people are living in crummy boats. These are not fancy boats that people are going out for a joy ride or fishing in. These are things that are barely seaworthy, dilapidated boats that people are living in, usually without access to heat or cooling or normal sanitary capabilities, just because housing has gotten so bad. And this is going to really blow your mind. There are places where uh, Silicon Valley is one that's done this from time to time, where they run all-night buses, and people are using the buses as a place to sleep till they go to work the next day. And many times these are people with jobs that pay what's considered to be decent amounts of money. These are tough ways to live. And I want you to know that in such a strong job market in the country, that if you can relocate, there are so many cities in the country that are vibrant, dynamic, have fast-growing labor markets, where housing is so much more affordable. A lot of places in the Midwest have a lot of really solid job markets and very affordable housing. I think about something I talked about a while back about people who were moving from Northern California to Kansas City and where in Northern California there was never a prospect that they'd be able to move from an apartment life to living in a home they own. And they might move to Kansas City, make less money, but be able to own a home and establish roots. And the story of Jacksonville, Florida, that was 
that occurred because of a horrific event in the United States, the September 11th terrorist attacks, the purpose of part of what Al-Qaeda hoped to do at that time was to destroy the banking sector of the United States. And so at that time, there was ultimately a requirement that banks uh, go from having one headquarters area that could be vulnerable to attack to decentralizing. And that's why the big financial houses, the brokerages, the banks have decentralized facilities that if one area was attacked and another would still be able to operate. And that's why you may call a company based in New York or San Francisco or wherever, and you're talking to people in Phoenix or Denver or Jacksonville or whatever. And in Jacksonville, a lot of the New York area banks offer employees transfers to these alternative operations in Jacksonville, and they have to take a pay cut, maybe 25%, 30%. And they line up to do it because the quality of life and the housing situation is so much better from living in the tri-state area that they do it. So we don't move like we used to, but the housing cost problem, especially in the mid-Atlantic, northeast, and on the west coast, is so severe that a way to improve your quality of life may be to do what people have done throughout American history, just not lately, pick up and move. Jeannie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you? Hi, Clark. It's an honor to speak with you. I'm one of your biggest heroes. Well, um, you're one of my biggest heroes. <laughs> well, I know either way works for me. That's great. So, Jeannie, you're my hero because you do so well with money that you're looking for other ways to invest it. Yes, I am, and I know real estate is one of your favorites, so I wanted to get your opinion on a couple things. Sure. Let's hear. Okay, terrific. Um, currently, um, I'm in my mid-50s. My husband and I are actually quasi-close to retirement, so we're kind of switching gears, and our skill sets for working are not as sharp as some of our competitors in younger tax brackets and ages. So we wanted to maybe consider doing a second rental property. I um, inherited a property from my mother, and it does not have a mortgage on it. So I'm able to enjoy income from that, and it's been really, fortunately, we've been very lucky having a good renter. And um, there's a property across the street from the existing rental where the gentleman wants to possibly sell it to us. And, um, you know, commission is something I try to avoid. I've actually sold a couple of homes my own. And I've also just joined real estate school, so I'm actually going to learn a little bit more about this uh, here in the coming weeks. But I wanted to know, is, it, is there a risk in buying a rental in the same neighborhood as my first rental? And then... Um, I think there's a know, direct maybe, advantage to that. Uh, there is. Okay. Yeah. Now, there are people that would talk about geographic diversification, but the advantage to buying in a, the neighborhood that you already have a property, you know that neighborhood. You know if the neighborhood is improving over time, declining over time. You know what fair market value is. You already know what kind of tenant you're going to attract and what kind of rent you're going to be able to charge. So I'd say that that makes it a lower risk transaction when you buy in an area that's already familiar to you. Plus, think how convenient it is. When you come over to do a maintenance item on one of your rental properties, you can always look in on how things are going at the other one. Not like let yourself into the house, but, you know, eyeball how the renter's taking care of things, how things look like they're going. 
So I love that. that. Good. I was afraid I might be putting all my eggs, not diversifying enough, I guess, was my concern. You mean in uh, having rental property, uh, not just in the same neighborhood, but across the street from each other? No problem at all. Okay, because I was afraid if this neighborhood went south, and I really have two investments in a going south neighborhood, but there's no sign of that, honestly. It's really right. A hot and, and by the way, neighborhoods don't decline overnight. It's a gradual thing over time. And neighborhoods generally don't improve overnight, they improve gradually. So as long okay. as you're keeping an eye on your investments, if you start to notice changes in the neighborhood, like yards not being kept up the quality of the cars you see on the street and the driveway start going down the second you see a car up on blocks you know (laughs) it's time for you to say this isn't the neighborhood i'm going to be an investor in anymore you're out so you got plenty of time to turn away from a neighborhood if that becomes necessary okay what, what else do you and your husband have to live on besides the rental property you inherited plus the one you'd be buying? We um, have done a a very fine job of of living beneath our means. So we actually have a retirement account balance of about half a million. And then our net worth between the two properties with that retirement is a little over a million. So it's, it's exciting. I'm a little scared to say it. I really didn't know we ended up being this well off. And I want to make sure I protect my investments and then find new revenue streams as we decide to, uh, scale back working we'll probably both stay busy doing something odd but it won't be anything that's going to pay so well i um, think that's great property will bring money in your life is set up in a way that you can make great things happen for yourself the choice is available to you and what's unusual about having the two rental properties is they are investments but they also are something you have to manage it's different than owning your stock or bond and that's why over time it is a side business that can both earn you some current income and ultimately additional wealth and so i think they're great and they're part of diversifying your portfolio so nobody should be all real estate nobody should be who's living on less than what they make they shouldn't be all real estate and they shouldn't be all stocks and bonds a mix of the two is what creates the greatest financial security Dave is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Dave. Hey, Clark. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. You have a question about 401k, right? I do, sir. Just a quick synopsis of uh, what's going on. Uh, I've done several years in the military. Thank you for your service. Which branch? I was in the Army for 38 years, and it was a pleasure serving you. 38 years. What was your favorite duty station? Oh, they're all good. I love that. The thing is, uh, my wife has always worked. She's been in the banking business, but, you know, some some of them were offered the 401k, some of them weren't, but now that I'm retired, she has uh, an opportunity for the bank matches up to 12%. What? That's what I said. I said, you better go back and read that again. She come back and, yep, they match 12%, so... So she I'm puts up 12, I, they put up 12? Correct. No way. That's, well, I'm wondering, she's wow. never had been in a retirement plan before, is should I do like a 2025 life cycle, or I should put all my eggs in one basket and go aggressive and see what happens? No, I like the life cycle funds. I mean, doing 2025, uh, that 
if you're going to need the money in the next seven, eight, ten years, doing a 2025 year fund is a great strategy because it's the responsibility of the fund to continually massage what's in that fund to get the mix right based on your age and how soon you're going to use the money. Right, because she's 59 right now, and we didn't quite know which way to roll with that. So she'll have the option of putting in 12% of her pay, and they magically match it with 12%, so she's saving basically a quarter of her pay. That's, That's That is wonderful. So does the employer offer her a choice of a Roth 401k or only a traditional? She came home with a book the other day, and it's got all kinds of stuff in it. It's got the life cycle. It's got, you know, the uh, low risk, moderate risk, high risk. Yeah, she should avoid all those choices and go life cycle. But this is a different question, and you'll have to look through that thick booklet, is that a majority of employers now offer a choice between a traditional 401k where you get a tax deduction for putting money into it on that 12% of her pay she'd put in, or you can do a Roth 401k where you get no tax deduction, but the money is yours tax-free later on. In her case, with a 50-50 match like that, if she is offered the Roth 401k, I want her to do that choice because that way half of her money would be in a pre-tax pile because that employer's match is automatically pre-tax money that's taxed later, and then she'd have her post-tax money, which would be her contributions. So that, to me, would be the ideal thing is if she does have the Roth 401k, do the 12%, the employer does the 12%, and does the life cycle fund. That would be a perfect package. Well, that sounds great. All right. Well, well, best to you. And again, 38 years. Everybody else quits at 20. What are you doing for 38? I did uh, active duty, then I did reserve time, then I went back on the AGR program. So it all equaled up to 38 years total. Well, wonderful. I mean, devoting your entire life to serving our country. What a wonderful, wonderful thing you've done for your fellow American, Dave. Janie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Janie. Hello, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. Certainly. We have a credit union, and we have a debit card. And when they converted to the chip, it was backed by one major credit card company. When we were issued our new card with the chip, uh, it was a different credit card company. And so my so, question So did yours go from Visa to MasterCard or MasterCard yes, to yes, Visa? Yes. And so... My question to you is this, you know, how does that affect our credit reporting agencies? Not at all. It doesn't look like we've gotten a new... No, not at all, because first you said it was a debit card, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. So a debit card is not reported to the credit bureaus. Only a credit card is reported. But I have a debit card issued in my name, and my husband has one, but he also has a credit card from our credit union that's a credit card. And so, you know, does that look like we've gotten a new... Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. When an issuer chooses to de-affiliate from Visa and go to MasterCard or vice versa, Uh when they do it and they just send you a new card, you know, in order to serve you better we've dumped Visa and gone to MasterCard or whatever, that doesn't affect your credit at all. 
Oh, good. Because, you know, based on good advice from you, we, we listen to you every single day. Thank you. We put a freeze on our three credit reporting agencies. And so I just wanted to make sure that nothing disrupts that moving forward with this chip and all of that. No, it, that'll have no effect. The irony is that if they were doing what's known as a hard inquiry on your credit uh-huh. that would affect your credit score, uh-huh. that would have required that you thaw your credit. The fact that they sent the new card transitioning from Visa to MasterCard and they did it without any inquiry means that it has no effect whatsoever. Well, that's good news, and I thank you for taking my call again. My pleasure, and you're a a smart lady to have frozen your credit. So glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. One of the things I've done in my past is I established, I founded an alternative school, and a lot of the people who came to my school had dropped out of high school. School had never, traditional school had never worked for them. They may have been in trouble with the law at some point. There were any of a number of factors that someone ended up enrolled at my alternative school. And I learned firsthand how many people were this close to ending up in a life of crime or ending up as regular producing taxpaying citizens. And so I've always had a frustration in how we have treated prisoners in the United States where we create conditions that they are beyond hope so often. You know, depending on the prison system in the country, often three-quarters of those prisoners will end up right back in prison after release committing other crimes. We don't build a bridge, or have not historically, for prisoners who've done the crime, done their time, to then be able to reintegrate into society. And I'm so excited there's more and more efforts along those lines around the country. And it hadn't mattered where people are on the political spectrum. This seems to be the one area of bipartisan cooperation in the United States is across the political spectrum, people realize that we've been doing something insane with how we've handled criminals in the United States. And one of the areas that I've been so frustrated about forever is when the prisons set things up to destroy the ability for family members to keep connections to the prisoners. And once people lose that family connection, it's really hard for them to end up in a position where they become part of general society when they get out because they've lost what's so important to rebuilding often. And how have the prisons done it? by ripping off the prisoners' families with massively expensive phone calls that no one can afford. And there are these really corrupt, dirty contracts where phone calls that essentially cost nothing today are billed to a prisoner's family at a huge cost per minute so that these um, politically connected prisoner phone companies can make huge money 
And often a sheriff will be getting money from that as commissions or a prison system or whatever. And all you do is you break one of the most important things to keep a prisoner from committing another crime. Well, now you can tell listening to me, this is really important to me. Now, more and more um, counties, prison systems, jurisdictions, even states are considering making calls to family free, from family free, understanding how important those connections are. And I hope that this is something that just becomes the thing around the country. Because again, if you pick up your cell phone and you make a call to someone anywhere in the country, it's free, right? Long distance charging is a fiction today. But the cost of crime to all of us is real. The other part of this is we've got to continue to enhance the efforts with well thought through and funded programs for when somebody is being released from prison they just don't go straight back to the streets that they are in programs that will help them re-enter society and become productive citizens and taxpayers there are programs around the country that are having great results with that, if you're a longtime listener, you probably heard me talk about a program in Florida that is a model for the country to have people re enter society and not recur as a criminal. That someone becomes a former criminal and a productive citizen. Randy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Randy. How are you? Great, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. Um, I have a question for you about mortgage. Uh, we recently refinanced our home, and this was uh, we've been fortunate enough to pay extra payments over the past years, and we're able to get our mortgage down to, I believe it was less than 60% you know, equity versus the loan. And so we um, once we refinanced, we did it by shaving an additional four years off and a slightly lower interest rate. So we were excited that so we now have a 20-year loan versus a 30 so wow. my question is, it's really a two-part question. Once we refinance, we started to receive a bunch of offers in the mail from various groups offering to help us set up like bi-weekly or weekly uh, mortgages versus the monthly payment. So my first question is, you know, what's what our That does not compute. We, we have complete flexibility whether we pay weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. Um, so what, what would you recommend as the best option for someone to do? All those your- offers you received in the mail are rip-offs. Okay. And depending on who the lender is, either the lender is in cahoots with the people that send you that junk mail, or depending on what's available in your state, they may have gotten some kind of public record information. Which I'm guessing is probably the case. We certainly did not call or respond to any of these. We were just going to deal with our mortgage provider directly. And they do not, uh, mortgage lenders in the United States do not permit people to re-amortize a loan as a weekly, bi-weekly, or anything like that. Okay. And so you're left with these third-party rip-off artists that you assign your mortgage payments to them, hope that they will actually make your payment on time. They take the money you're paying and they pocket the extra for a year 
and then at the end of a year they make one additional payment for you they promise but again you're trusting some ufo to do that stuff it is really really rough and it's expensive to set up or that you'll pay over time for it and you're creating a hazard that the payments don't get made on time and whose credit gets trashed yours and if the money is absconded with by whoever's sending you the mailers you're left having to make your mortgage payment a second time well i'm glad i called you um so my next question to you would be um should we just continue to do what we've done in the past which is every few months we just we've typically just made an extra uh payment toward the principal only so is that yeah, if, if it is a real high priority for you, yes, that is the right way to do it. You want to stay in control of the process. You're obviously very disciplined in how you handle money. But I want to talk about the strategy. If you're at 20 years, there may be better choices for you to, to use that money for than paying down principal on a mortgage that's at such an extremely low interest rate. Okay. Do you have any other debts? No, we have not had debt for years, and we do a great job. We both max out our 401ks and our IRAs every year, and we have some other, you know, small mutual fund investments that are. If you're doing all that and you want to prepay your mortgage and become debt free, go ahead. Okay. Because see, I I can't remember the last time I had somebody hit every check mark. I was going to ask you. You set them all. You are a max saver, you're investing, you're doing all the retirement planning and funding to the max, and so if your goal is to be completely debt-free, including your mortgage, even though it's at under 4%, go ahead and do it, because it feels great to be completely debt-free. Right. You know, I don't carry debt, I despise debt, but I always put people through a hierarchy of priorities and you've met all that hierarchy so you want to make additional principal do it okay perfect and continued financial success to you you know you are creating your own opportunities randy by how you're handling money and so all your options are good amanda's with us on the clark howard show hi amanda how are you good how about you great thank you How can I be of service to you, Amanda? Well, I'd like to hire an individual to help me with some housekeeping. And I'm not sure what I can do to help to check out her background to find out how trustworthy she might be. Well, in most major cities, there are services that you can go to that do a background check, a screening, a personality screening, And you pay them a commission for placing somebody with you either as a housekeeper, a nanny, anything like that. And that is the most thorough and effective way for you to check out somebody you're considering hiring. And that way I'd be able to get the same individual who would come each time and they wouldn't be changing people out on me? Okay, now that's a great question because those are – there are – housekeeping services that you're hiring them to provide housekeeping but you never know who's going to show up at your home i'm talking about a different process where you hire one of the services that screens people and recommends somebody to you 
who they've done a criminal background check, a credit check, a driving check, whatever, you know, things that might create liability to you or risk to you or create a bad situation for you. And they interview those people for you and they send you potential eligible candidates. Oh, good. Okay. Now, that's a more expensive process than what most people are willing to do because you're going to pay a commission based usually on like what that person, what you've hired them in for the first 90 days or six months or something like that. But you're going to be able to have pretty much complete peace of mind that the individual working in your home is somebody you can be comfortable with and trust. And this would be my employee and not theirs. So if I end up paying them more than I the cutoff for the year, I'd have to do the payroll taxes on them as well? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and that is, I mean, you know, what most people do because of what's referred to as the nanny tax, which is a big pain in the rear end, it's household employee tax, Yes, is that most people do, in fact, hire someone through a service where they're not your employee and they're on their payroll. But again, you have the issue that you might not be getting the same person all the time. Okay. How many hours a week are you thinking of having somebody? Well, I've only budgeted in just below the 1900 a year. So if I oh. stay below that 1900 just to get someone to help just a little bit, you know, throughout the month, I should stay under that threshold. In that kind of case, you may not be able to afford one of those services I'm talking about because mm-hmm. they're geared more towards full-time household employees. Uh, there may be one that offers backgrounding kind of checks and stuff like that but that that would work with you on hiring a part-timer but i would be surprised if i can't afford that service what can i do on my own you have the right to get somebody's signed permission for you to run a background check and it's just like when i talk about people who are looking at tenants for a rental property that your requirement of the law is that you have their written permission to run a background check and you are certainly allowed to do that on somebody you would have coming into your home you just have to have their written permission but in that case you're paying for it mm-hmm. where in the landlord tenant situation the tenant is paying prospective tenant is paying for their background check so you are wise to do backgrounding on someone because you just never know there are a lot of people who can come across as very charming and all the rest but gosh you just don't know and i did mention before handy.com and i don't know if that would be something you should look at where they claim that they background check people who are going to be doing cleaning in your home or uh, handyman kind of stuff in your home you could look at that with the actually minimal amount of time you're looking for somebody to be in your home This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Robert, how can I serve you? Yeah, sure. I listen to you all the time, and you always give wonderful advice. I just wanted to make sure I understood something about the Roth IRA. Okay. The know was that when you invest in one of those, is the money that you put in invested in other stocks or mutual funds, or is it just saved up like in a savings account or a regular IRA? All right, that is a great question. All right, here's how it plays. The best explanation I have for an IRA, a Roth IRA, a 401k, 403b that people have at nonprofits, anything like that, is the vehicle like a Roth is the house. And then you choose how to furnish it. And you can furnish it by funding your Roth with CDs or savings accounts. You can furnish it by buying bonds or stocks. You can buy mutual funds. You can buy a target retirement fund. You can buy virtually any investment you can think of inside a Roth, a regular IRA, a 403B or a 401K. You're limited to the investment choices that the sponsor offers. But when you do an IRA or a Roth, it can be in anything. Does that help? Yeah, it sure does. And another question I had, because the reason why I've been so eager to get a Roth IRA is because I know that the money uh, that you put in is already taxed. But here's the question. Do they, say, for example, I put in $100, do they tax the $100 or is the $100 tax-free because the money's already been taxed? Uh, tax-free um, for the rest of your life. Right, right. So, so $100 stays $100. Right, and but here's the cool part. Whatever it earns, so let's say you put $100 in, and over 30 years, that $100 becomes 400 When you reach retirement age... You spend the $400 and the whole thing is tax-free. That's what's so beautiful about it. A regular IRA, and there are situations where a regular IRA is the better choice, more where the Roth's the better choice. You put into an IRA $100, that was pre-tax. It and everything it earns is fully taxed when you retire. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.